This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 24th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, outgoing science editor-in-chief Marsha McNutt talks about her time at the magazine and what's next for her as the president of the National Academy of Sciences. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. First, we have a story on mosquito bites. When mosquitoes bite, they are injecting us with their saliva while drinking our blood. Yeah. Just a tiny amount of material passes from the bugs to us. But unfortunately, it's not just spit. What else is in there, Catherine? All sorts of good stuff. A numbing agent that makes us unaware of the bite. Blood thinners that make our blood easier for the mosquito to suck up. And then there are the diseases, everything from malaria to dengue to Zika. And don't forget chikungunya. Oh, well, yes, if I can say it. And don't forget chikungunya. (laughs) Researchers noticed that mosquito-borne infections are a lot worse when delivered by a mosquito rather than, say, by an injection from a clean needle, and thought maybe these other components in the saliva have something to do with that. What do they do to figure this out? They infected mice with a relative of the chikungunya virus, a relatively harmless variety of something called the Semblicki forest virus, or SFV. Much easier way of saying that. As expected, the mice got sick, but not that sick, and none of them died. But when the researchers injected the exact same virus into a mosquito bite on their skin, things went downhill very quickly. The mice got so sick that four of the 11 died. Okay, what's going on here? Why would injecting a virus at the site of a mosquito bite make things so much worse? Scientists used to think that the saliva was somehow responsible for suppressing the immune system. But a different experiment showed that this is not the case. Researchers injected SFV into another group of mice. But this time, the virus was labeled with fluorescent dye so researchers could trace what happened when the immune system attacked. First, the mosquito saliva triggered inflammation, which warned the immune system that the body had been breached. Neutrophils, the body's first responders, rushed to the site. These cells, in turn, recruited another kind of cell, macrophages, 
These are white blood cells that gobble up microbes. Here's where it gets interesting. The virus started to attack these macrophages and turn them into little virus factories. That allowed the disease to spread even faster than it would have otherwise. The virus is taking advantage of something that happens when mosquitoes bite us. Uh, we get this inflammation. Isn't that what makes us feel itchy? Are both of these things, these terrible things, happening because of the same process? Yes and yes. The viruses are trying to take advantage of a key immune defense, inflammation. Viruses that spread via mosquitoes and other insects are already at a big disadvantage. In order for them to move on to another host, they have to multiply quickly in the blood. That way, the next time a mosquito bites, they have a better chance of being lapped up along with the blood. It makes sense that these pathogens would evolve to use everything they can to their advantage. This is a virus that I have never heard of, but it does seem to be taking advantage of a mechanism that might be common to a bunch of different viruses. Is that something that they're going to figure out next? That's the plan. Um, right now, it looks like this sort of thing would also be taking place uh, for any type of mosquito-borne virus. You know, you're talking, as I said, malaria, chikungunya, uh, dengue. But the key here would be to replicate this experiment with those viruses to see if indeed this, the same thing is happening. Next up, we have a story on using human shields. Male brown bears have a pretty violent reproductive strategy, killing cubs that don't belong to them. Female bears tend to stay as far away as they can when they have cubs, sometimes straying into human territory. Why might this be a successful strategy? For bears, humans are enemy number one. But for mama bears with young cubs, there's an even more dangerous enemy, violent males who kill off cubs that aren't their own, just like you said. As a matter of fact, one study showed that males kill off about 35% of all cubs. So smart moms seem to have come up with a new defense, live as close to humans as possible, using them basically like shields against these murdering males. I really like this theory, the idea that living closer to one one thing that's dangerous keeps something else that's even more dangerous away. But does it actually work for the bears? So far, the answer seems to be yes. A new study followed 30 mama bears in Sweden from 2005 to 2012. 19 kept their cubs alive, but 11 lost them to male attacks. It turns out that the lucky mama bears lived much closer to human settlements on average, 783 meters, or about a half a mile, compared to 1,213 meters. Successful bear families stayed in clear-cut areas that were full of shrubs and young trees, presumably to better hide from people. The unsuccessful ones lived in tree-rich bogs and forests. Those places had more food, but they also had more marauding males. Uh, this is kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type scenario. Do any other animals uh, do things like this? One example is the herons and egrets that live in the Florida Everglades. They build their nests near alligators who eat whatever chicks tumble from their nests and into the river below. But the alligators also protect the nests from egg thieves like raccoons and possums. So the birds seem to be hiding behind this alligator shield, just like the bears are hiding behind these human shields. And getting back to bears for a second, is there a fear that cubs that grow up so close to people might be in trouble as they get older? There's definitely that fear, but researchers don't know anything for certain yet. 
Some of the questions they hope to answer include whether these young bears are more comfortable around humans. And if they are, does that put them at a greater risk of some kind of conflict in the future? Scientists also want to know if this human shield strategy is a learned behavior passed down from mother to cub. If so, it could mean that forest wardens may have to change how they manage wildlife. One example is a lot of wildlife management strategies for bears right now focus on bear-proof containers, making sure that no food is in a place that would attract bears to human habitation. So it turns out that if this is what's actually going on, that this is more of a reproductive strategy than a food-finding strategy, these kind of containers are only going to go so far in keeping bears away. Last up, we have a story on a new model organism for psychiatric disease. Mice don't always do a good job standing in for people in the lab, particularly when it comes to disorders of the brain, like autism or schizophrenia. Mice have not been much help in pinning down genes important for these conditions. You know what would work much better, Catherine? Blind cavefish. Yeah, yeah, fish that have lost their eyes. This is complicated. So let's just start with eye loss and then move on to mental illness. What do we know about how they lose their eyes? This sounds like a very intuitive jump, Sarah. Um, Well, so we know that these cavefish are special and that they have relatives on the surface that can see, but they differ in physiology. When these cavefish are born, they actually do have eyes, but what happens is over time, they have certain genes that kill off the eyes during development, which is crazy. What's really interesting, though, is that these genes also cause eye problems in humans. So there's this link between the loss of vision in the fish and the loss of vision in some people. And then we are going to get to mental illness here. Let's talk about some of the different behaviors that the cavefish have from their relatives that do have eyes and a little bit more pigmentation as well. Scientists studying the behavior of these cavefish notice something interesting. They don't school like their counterparts on the surface. Instead, they lead pretty solitary lives. They also almost never sleep, and they're attracted to vibrations in the water. They tend to be hyperactive, and they seem to have higher levels of anxiety than surface fish. All of these are evolved behaviors. The fish are solitary since they don't have any natural predators, for example. What's interesting is how these behaviors became dominant over time. Now, researchers are trying to figure out which genes are responsible. This is kind of where we get back to the fact that genetic studies in mice have been problematic. Do these fish have something in them that resembles more what's going on with people in terms of linking genes with these behaviors? They have the genes that we're looking for. Um, As a matter of fact, their genomes contain 90% of the 101 major risk factor genes for human psychiatric diseases, like schizophrenia and autism. Fully one-third of those genes are active in the cavefish compared to the surface fish. So there's differences in the cavefish and the surface fish. In terms of gene expression. Now, this sounded really wacky to me. I mean, these fish sound like they're behaving pretty oddly, but they do live in total darkness. And there might be very valid reasons for these differences. Um, But when the researchers gave the fish drugs, they saw effects on the behavior, right? They did behavioral effects that are different from similar experiments in mice. The scientists treated cavefish with several psychiatric drugs. Several years back, they found that Prozac caused the fish to organize into a social hierarchy. 
And just last week, they reported that the SSRI, floxetine, and the antipsychotic drug clozapine made the fish sleep more and swim around less. The drug responses are surprisingly similar to what doctors see in human patients. And that's strong evidence that cave fish could be a good model for human psychiatric disease, say the scientists. I kind of want to draw some deeper parallel here. And I say, you know, people are more like eyeless cave fish in terms of their emotion than fuzzy little social mice. Uh, do you have similar feelings, Catherine? Well, I mean, we certainly are today, at least in terms of those of us who live in cities and work in offices. We're always scrambling from cave to cave to cave. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. Thanks, Catherine. Okay, what else is on the site this week? We have a story on contagious clam cancer and a story on genes that actually rev up after death. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on new drone rules for research and a story on why the Orlando shooter may have fired. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Today, nearly anything is possible, and if we can dream it, teams can build it. So how do you bring everyone together to create what's next? Team up with Atlassian, makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. Assign, track, and manage tasks for any project, no matter how complex. That's the clarity of JIRA. Create and share content, organize results, and bring team members up to speed. That's the flexibility of Confluence. Instant message or video chat with your team from any device. That's the freedom of HipChat. Test, review, and manage code in real time. That's the power of Bitbucket. Here at Science, our web development team actually uses Atlassian's Jira to manage projects. And what I hear from them is that it's really a wonderful tool for tracking the projects they're working on now, but also future projects. And they really appreciate the flexibility to customize not just for the whole team, but also for individuals on the team. So visit Atlassian.com and see how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. I just learned that blind cavefish might be a really good model for human psychiatric diseases. What did you learn this week? If it wasn't enough, I think you should check out The Great Courses Plus video learning service. You can learn about just about anything from these courses, and they really get into the nitty-gritty details of any topic, chemistry, history, physics, whatever you want to learn about from a top professor. I especially want to mention The Inexplicable Universe, which is presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson. As usual, his engaging style makes the inexplicable suddenly understandable. I really think you'll like The Great Courses Plus, and listeners to this show will get one month free for signing up. So sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. That's thegreatcoursesplus slash science.
starting this July, Science is getting a new editor-in-chief, and we have to say goodbye to Marsha McNutt. She's moving on to become president of the National Academy of Sciences, but before she goes, we get to hear from her one more time on the podcast. Marsha, I listened to your first appearance on the podcast in preparing for this show, and you talk a bit about your goals for the magazine. Of course, those must have shifted as you spent more time here. What were some of the things that really stuck, and then what did you feel more strongly about as time went on? In looking back at what I said when I first got here, I realized, first of all, how naive I was <laughs> and how much I've learned and grown from having been here at Science and having interacted with the great staff here. First of all, I realized that a couple things did stick, but I also was able to do a number of other things because I took the opportunity to take advantage of the great skills of the staff here that meant that I could go so far beyond what really were some pretty modest goals that I had when I arrived. So, for example, the things that stuck were really the focus on making science accessible to a broad audience. For example, if you look at science from maybe four or five years ago versus the science of today and look at simply the research summaries. The fact that they are so much more accessible, there's so much less jargon in them. It means that it's very easy for anyone. In fact, even my mother can read those and she can understand instantly what is the important new finding in each of those papers and why it is that we selected that particular paper. Definitely. So what did you learn and, and, and decide to take on once you were here for a bit? I quickly realized that this issue of reproducibility and the growing concern outside of the scientific community, the narrative that science was broken could become a problem if we didn't nip it in the bud that we had to be seen as scientists taking action to, first of all, show that science is not broken and that we were taking steps to improve the transparency and improve the reproducibility of all of the work we were doing. And so this was something that I felt science, along with our fellow journals, could actually take some leadership in. Because after all, we are sort of the final toll gate in terms of what research gets out into wide dissemination. And as that final toll gate, we can impose some restrictions on what we consider to be appropriately documented work. And by doing so, we have a lot of power. And so I organized a, a lot of workshops and worked together with fellow journals and with funding agencies to help come up with some good ideas as to how we could do this in a way that not only helped with reproducibility, but actually made science more transparent and also made information more available so that science would benefit not just in reproducibility, but also in making further science easier to do because 
other studies could be done with that information. Right. Were you also part of bringing on analysis of our statistics that we published? Was that part of that same effort? Exactly. That was part of the same effort because part of the reason why studies were not reproducible was a concern that some studies that were being published might simply be flukes, Mm -hmm. that there had not been enough care put into study design, that there had not been enough replicates analyzed, and that perhaps even there had not been care done in the statistical analysis to support the claims made in the paper. So by creating a special group within our board of reviewing editors called the Statistical Board, we created a group of experts who could look at each paper and determine what were the special challenges in the use of numerical analysis or the use of statistics that might require special examination, and who were the reviewers, therefore, that needed to see that paper. And they could advise our editors on that. Just to kind of turn a little bit now to your your path and your career, I mean, you are leaving science, and you've come out of administrative executive positions before this, but you were, even prior to that, an academic and a researcher. You know, you've held all these different positions. How do you see How do you see your background, your work here at Science, playing into the role of executive? I am truly ever grateful for this opportunity to have been editor-in-chief of Science, particularly going into this role as president of the National Academy of Sciences, because the National Academy of Sciences is somewhat unique. Well, in fact, it is indeed unique amongst all academies of sciences in the entire world in that it has in its charter the obligation to be advisors to the federal government and to advise the government on any topic to which science can contribute when asked. And when you think of all of the problems that this nation faces to which science can contribute, They run the entire gamut from microbiology to space science, climate change, ecosystem problems, feeding a growing population, water scarcity, problems in social sciences. And I can't imagine any better training to take on that broad portfolio than having spent this time as editor-in-chief of science. That makes total sense. What prompted you to make this shift from academia and research into these different types of roles? I think that um, I was truly perhaps happiest in my entire life doing my own research. And anyone who is at their core a scientific researcher will probably say that. Because there is nothing more fulfilling than that eureka moment when you actually discover something that no one else knows and you get to be the one to communicate that to everyone else. But having said that, I also know that every time I changed jobs, 
and went to a different institution, I grew. And I grew in new ways by being able to interact with different people, by being able to encounter different institutional structures. And in some ways, I felt that my talents were sometimes better suited to not just doing my own science, but by being able to enable the science of other people. And so maybe leaving my own research was the best thing that I could have done. Yeah. Uh, as part of preparation for this, I looked over many of your editorials, and there are a lot. You didn't write every week, but there are many, many editorials. And they broke down into a couple of themes. One that was obvious right off the bat for me was disasters. Uh, Katrina, Deepwater Horizon, Flint, you've made comments on many of these different types of disasters. You even uh, recently brought up the threat to California's water supply from earthquakes at a recent meeting. That actually freaked out some people in the room because it was so scary. Um, how did this focus on disasters come about for you? When I was director of the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, the USGS, of course, has a very broad remit across water ecosystems, energy, minerals, mapping, etc., but one of the more unique areas where the USGS provides science for the nation is in the area of hazards. So the USGS, through the Stafford Act, is actually responsible for providing warnings for earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, landslides, etc. So while I was at the USGS, I really spent uh, quite a large fraction of my time on disasters. And in fact, I presided at the USGS during a time of probably unprecedented number of disasters. When you think of the Haiti earthquake, the Chilean earthquake, the Icelandic volcanic eruption, the Japanese earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the 2011 floods in the Midwest, the Virginia earthquake, Superstorm Sandy. All of those happened Amazing. while I was there. That's a so lot of disasters. So it's, it's probably not hard to understand why coming to science from the USGS I would have disasters on the mind. Definitely. Do you think that'll continue on in your next role as well? Well, I think it will simply because natural hazards are a part of living on this restless earth. But the difference between a hazard and a disaster is how we as a society decide to live on this planet. And there are so many good examples of how society can build resiliency into our physical conditions, into our social conditions, into our financial institutions. And in so many ways, we don't do that. And in fact, in so many ways, we do just the opposite. 
We encourage people to live in dangerous areas. And in fact, we encourage them to rebuild there again and again and again. And so until we actually start using reasonable science to drive resiliency, we are going to continue to have more people exposed to more and greater disasters with mounting dollars. And this is something that really needs to be raised in the public conscience. Is there anything else that you want to share about your time at science? Well, other than the fact that I'm going to be very sorry to be leaving such a terrific professional team here, one with such longevity, amazing knowledge and experience, and particularly such professionalism, I think that it's not uncommon to see that people from the outside may get disappointing news if their paper's been rejected or if they see something published that they may not agree with. And I wish everyone had the experience of knowing this process and this place from the inside because they would then know the time, effort, and care that goes into every single decision here. Thanks so much, Marcia. Thanks. Marcia McNutt is Science's Editor-in-Chief. Her last editorial appears this week in Science. This episode was brought to you by Atlassian, makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. See how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian works to help teams large and small ascend to new heights to create what's next. Visit Atlassian.com. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.